Welcome to the Genre Wars Book Podcast, which exists to help you read wider and find great new books where you didn't expect them. We chat about the best stories from people's favorite genres with the authors who write them. I'm your host, Tim Hawken, and today I'll be talking modern fantasy with Fonda Lee. Fonda is the author of the incredible Greenbone Saga, which recently made NPR's greatest 50 sci-fi and fantasy books of the decade. She's won a World Fantasy Award, three Aurora Awards, and could legitimately fly-kick anyone who started a flame war on Twitter because she's a black belt martial artist. Fonda, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Tim. <laughs> what, um, what martial art or arts do you have a black belt in? So I studied Shotokan karate for uh, about 12 years. And uh, then I moved to a new city uh, in Portland, Oregon, and uh, joined, uh, didn't find a, a school um, that taught the same style in my neighborhood. And so I joined a, um, a Kung Fu school and I did a Shellen style Kung Fu for about another decade. Wow. Um, and then, uh, so I have a black belt, both of those disciplines. And right before the pandemic began, um, I uh, started training a, a bit in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I had been doing that for about a year. Um, and now I'm trying to find my way back in uh, now that we're, we're kind of back in, in uh, in-person training yeah. opportunities. So, yeah, I've always been doing martial arts in some, uh, some manner. And did you, do you like? Do you find as a writer that that really helps you with fight scenes and um, getting into the nitty gritty and and actually make making things believable? I think it certainly does. Not necessarily because of specific techniques, because I've written a lot of fight scenes that I don't have personal experience in. I've written uh, sword fights and knife zero, fights, yeah, zero gravity boxing, zero fight. gravity, <laughs> zero boxing or uh, MMA in space. Um, which I most certainly do not have any personal experience in. Um, but the mindset um, of, of fight scenes and uh, of combat is something that I do draw some personal experience um, from having just been in, even in training and sparring matches and, and uh, competitions. Um, and because I just legitimately love a good action scene. So I'm always admiring them on film or um, noticing good ones in books. And so I think it's more just my passion for it that that makes those scenes ones that are most enjoyable for me to write. Fantastic. And so, you, you know, you mentioned films and books. I'd love to hear just a little bit about your journey as a, a reader, but also a writer. Like, where did it all start for you? What are some of the books that um, or stories that captured your imagination um, and what have been your kind of big influences as, as you've moved along your career? Well, I have always been a science fiction and fantasy uh, consumer ever since I was an infant. So my uh, dad was a Star Trek fan and he tells the story of holding me as a, a baby in his lap and watching Star Trek original series reruns. Uh, and his favorite character was Spock. And so he was always like <laughs> quoting <laughs> Spock. That was his parental wisdom. <laughs> Rational. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so um, from a young age, I, I think maybe I as most some of that um, as, a, as a baby, but I was also a voracious reader. Um, so I was that, that kid who was always in the library until closing time and just... Would, would just plow through books. So um, I loved Chronicles of Pradain and Narnia. And, you know, later on, um, I discovered Asimov and Bradbury and Anne McCaffrey and other science fiction fantasy authors. And, um, oh, and then Star Trek Next Generation was my jam growing up. That was the one thing I could not miss every single week. I would, I would make sure I, I, was in front of the television when Star Trek TNG came on. So, um, so those, those definitely made me to the genre consumer and writer that I became. Um, but early on, I did not think that writing was a profession that I could actually have, that I could do. <laughs> the lack of role models or just 
this idea that maybe authors were some sort of mythical being that but somehow a normal people could not be like them. Mm. Uh, so I always just wrote for fun. I do it um, as a, as a hobby. Um, write stories on the bus and in biology class and um, fan fiction when I was in college. And uh, at some point, um, I had I was in I had a business career. I went and studied um, business and was working in corporate strategy and realized that I was not writing anymore. Life had just gotten too busy. Um, and it had always been a dream of mine to one day write a novel. So I had this epiphany where I said, you know, I've got to, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to make the time to, to do this thing. The way that some people say, you know, I got to run a marathon or I want to climb a mountain. So I did. I, I started taking um, writing more seriously. It was uh, at this point I was in my early thirties already. So I um, found the time to um, start taking writing classes and set myself goals and finishing manuscripts and sending um, them out and trying to get an agent and get published. And then I got my first book deal and thought I can do this again. So I wrote another book and one thing led to another. And now I have my sixth novel coming out. Tell me about um, how this current Greenbug saga kind of got found or um, at least matched up with Orbit via a hashtag on Twitter. Yeah, that was uh, just, the, it, it's, it's online. So if anyone is curious enough to Google uh, Jade City Manuscript Wishlist, my agent, my editor, and I wrote a joint blog post about how it happened because it really was this wild coincidence. I'd been working on Jade City for uh, coming up on two years and I sent it to my agent and it was, this was, would have been a, December of 2017. And um, he said, great, uh, looks good. We're going to take it out on submission. A couple of days later, certainly within that same week, um, there was a, a hashtag MSWL manuscript wish list uh, that I did not see, but a friend of mine who had read an early draft of Jade City saw. Um, and an editor from Orbit, Sarah Guan, had uh, tweeted out um, manus- with the manuscript wish list ha- hashtag that she would love to see. And I think the words were something like a Game of Thrones-esque story, but set in 1930s Asia with crime families and magic. And <laughs> it was just like the exactly most, the same I, mean, I could not promise 1930s Asia exactly because it was secondary world and it's not quite the thirties, but it, it was still so shockingly on point that I screen capped it and I sent it to my agent and he said, okay, well, she's going on the top of the submission list and the holidays came. And and then as soon as he was back in the office, he sent it to, to Sarah Guan, who would become my agent. And she read it blisteringly fast and got her whole editorial team on board. And then we had it off. It was like the fastest sale I've ever had in my life. Which just doesn't uh, happen in the publishing industry. Normally it's like yeah, a super yeah, long normally, process. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Normally you're waiting for a long time, um, but it just, the stars aligned. And sometimes those things happen in publishing. It's very strange. There's so many times um, in the journey as an, as an author and in the publishing process where it just feels like a grind. You're just, you're, you're just trying to persevere. You're trying to break in. Um, and you're just, it feels like sometimes you're chipping your concrete wall with a spoon. And if you do it long enough, occasionally the clouds part and the ray of divine light just like comes down and hits you at a, at a certain moment. There's so much luck in this business, but you kind of have to keep at it in order for those moments of luck to strike. Yeah. Well, I mean, third was it your third book, I believe that that you'd written at that point? It was, yes. So I was actually under, it was either my, it's kind of hard to say if it's my third or fourth because I was writing it somewhat concurrently with uh, another novel that was on contract. So I finished that one and then all was also 
uh, also sent Jade City out. So they were kind of happening uh, in, in tandem. Yeah, but I guess plenty of work going on. So when you talk about, you know, the clouds parting, and I, I love the quote, something about, um, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get or something like that. Right. Um, it def- definitely seems like it applies in your case. I'd love to hear about what happened when the Green Boak Saga came out. You won a World Fantasy Award for um, for Jade City. Um, like, what was the journey like after, I guess, sort of slogging away at a, at a writing career and have something picked up and and I guess hit at such a great time and and really resonate with um, a wider audience you know it's interesting because it uh, it got some great critical acclaim when it came out it won the world fantasy award it was nominated for a bunch of other awards um, and has continued to hit lists like the time like time magazine like NPR um, but it was most certainly not a commercial success right out of the gate. It was a it was a book that was hard to categorize, and this is something that I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, it what the Greenbone Saga um, is not what you would think of as traditional fantasy. Um, it takes place in a modern era metropolis. Um, it uh, has there's no there are no dragons there are no swords and sorcery um, it, but it is it's also not urban fantasy in that it is not New York with werewolves it's a completely separate secondary world um, and so there were there was some um, difficulty in kind of explaining what it was people would ask well is it epic fantasy is it urban fantasy um, and there. The cover of Jade City um, is so straightforward and kind of it, it had, sort of has it's just the, the title of it is really large because it wasn't it wasn't there wasn't sort of a obvious positioning for it because it wasn't something that you could splash a dragon on the cover or, you know, a, a magic school or you know, the, the <laughs> typical tropes that people sure. associate with, with fantasy. Um, so it really has been a, uh, a series that has gained traction through word of mouth and people being willing to take a chance on something that is not traditional fantasy. That is um, that, that, uh, kind of falls in between subgenres um, and is a little different. Yeah, so it's probably a great segue to talk about genres and tropes within fantasy. I mean, you mentioned dragons and wizards and spells and elves and goblins. I mean, a lot of people will know that kind of Lord of the Rings esque fantasy, a high fantasy. Um, but that's evolved a lot over the years, and now there's all these amazing subgenres in in modern fantasy. Do you have a sense for where that's changed um, and and why it's why it's evolved over the years? I do think that there has always been fantasy outside of, I guess, what I would think of as layperson perception of what fantasy is. If most people who aren't genre readers and don't uh, regularly read fantasy, think fantasy. The first thing they go to is Lord of the Rings or uh, Dungeons and Dragons type of um, setting, uh, which is in itself very much based on Lord of the Rings and um, that Tolkien-esque legacy. However, there was there's always been more than just that. Um, I, I'm thinking about um, when I was younger reading Ursula Le Guin, um, Anne McCaffrey. Uh, I recently went and read most of the backlist of Octavia Butler, who was doing incredibly innovative, amazing fantasy work, um, you know, decades ago. And so there's always been um, incredibly innovative, unique, complex um, fantasy fiction out there. And even today, to some extent, you know, largely people still do think of traditional fantasy when when you say fantasy. But I think a few things have changed in recent years, um, two of them in particular. One is that fantasy as a genre has become much more mainstream. Um, And so people are exploring it 
perhaps more than ever before because of the success. And truly, we owe mm. we, the whole genre owes um, uh, their growth, the growth of the field to the success of Harry Potter and Game of Thrones and the big um, properties that have based, uh, captured the imagination of millions of people. So um, there's, a, there's a mainstreaming of fantasy. And then the other thing that's happened is that um, the people who are writing fantasy, that population of authors has become much um, more diverse mm. and, and, and has attracted um, creators of different backgrounds who grew up on that traditional fantasy, but are now doing new and different things in the space. So when I, I talked about how I did not think that I could become a writer when I was young, even though that was my favorite thing in the world to do. And part of that is due to the fact that I did not know any Asian American fantasy authors. Mm. I knew of Amy Tan, who w wrote uh, stories that I had pers no personal interest in that particular genre. Um, and now, you know, even in, just in the last five years, I can think of um, many uh, Asian American and, and Asian diaspora authors who who are right in the fantasy field, um, as well as people of all different um, backgrounds. So I think the field has changed in terms of the creator pool, as well as the overall acceptance of the genre um, from from the from audiences. Yeah, I'd love to um, just pause a little bit and talk about. Um the whole term of writing what you know and putting your cultural experience into into your work and particularly with with the green boat saga like how much influence does that have in your writing how much do you draw on it um and where do you diverge away from that do you worry about it um not being general enough like how do you think about um adding culture into books i really just take things that I like and mash them together and find a way to ground them, you know, so that they appeal to me. And really when I'm writing a book, I'm writing a book that I want to read more than anything else. And what I want to read is something that is, um, that is cross-cultural because that's how that's the media that I consume and that I grew up in. Um, I grew up consuming all sorts Western media and, and traditional fantasy, as well as um, you know, uh, action movies and uh, Martin Scorsese films. Um, but my dad also introduced me to um, kung fu movies and uh, and wuxia novels um, and, and uh, you know, Bruce Lee, and so like all of those elements. Um, both sort of Western media and Eastern um, storytelling are kind of all mashing together in my mind. And um, that's sort of the stew out of which I end up um, creating the worlds that the world of the Greenbone saga. So um, I, I think that like you can sometimes um, get too caught up or, or overthink too much when it comes to like what is authentic and what are you pulling from? And, and I, I, I guess at the end of the day, what I'm saying is um, I, I write for myself and I try to write as truthfully as I can. Um, and I uh, do the research um, when there are things that I I need to do research in because I don't have any personal experience. I have not personally lived in Asia. I'm a skin generation um, Asian American. And so I have to do research in the same way um, that anyone else who, who ha doesn't have that personal experience has to do it. Um, and so uh, I, I guess the, I, I guess on what I'm saying is um, I have a vision for what the story is going to be. That's almost just like, vibes even before plot and character come into play and then um i often have to have to hunt down um the other 
the pieces, the real world influences in order to flash that out and make that come to life on the page. Mm. And I, like, I think it, it seems to me like the modern fantasy has that real world grounding in it, even though there's some kind of magic, it seems like it's a lot more grounded in real world than, than previous or traditional, what you might call traditional fantasy. Um, and just as an example with, with the Green Boat Saga, the magic in it is there's no spells or anything. It's more people getting elevated powers from um, a substance called jade. It kind of almost reminds me of the spice in June a little bit. Um, like where did you get that idea from? How did you think about injecting that into the story? It came about partially as wish fulfillment because as a martial artist, I would watch uh, Kung Fu movies and think I cannot punch through concrete and I cannot run up walls. This is deeply unfair. What am I missing here? <laughs> and so I thought, well, there's got to be a explanation. What, what is the magic here that I'm not getting from my, uh, my training? And uh, I, there's, there's plenty of fantasy um, that uses magic crystals or magic weapons, uh, magic gemstones. So I just um, literalized that. And jade is already a very valuable substance in Eastern culture. And I literally made it magic. Um, but I wanted it to have that gritty street feel that I loved so much in crime dramas. And um, so it couldn't be spells and, uh, and, and you know, a magic that just felt too out there. I wanted it to feel very grounded, very real. Um, and I also, because I have an economics background, to me, um, the idea of the magic as a resource was really appealing. And I could explore all these ideas of, well, what does it actually mean to process this magic substance and export it? Um, and make money off of it? And how does, uh, how does the international trade for this substance work and the regulation of it and the um, cartel that is established at a state level to, to, um, to uh, protect it as a natural resource and um, all the international powers that are going to vie for control of it. And of course, technology is going to come into play and somebody's going to find a way to create a drug so that people who can't use it now can use it. So um, I uh, never use the word magic in the books. Um, and I think that's why I have seen some reviewers refer to the trilogy as um, low magic or almost like a science fictional approach to magic mm. because um, it, the characters don't think of it as magic. They just think of it as a, a natural part of their society and they don't, it's not fully understood how it works, but it's, it, it, they know its rules and how to dig it up and how to, how to process it and how to use it and sell it. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the way that I wanted to treat the magic system was um, a way that felt very real um, and as if it could just fit into our own world. Um, but would all have all these like rippling repercussions on everything from politics to trade to uh, black markets um, and so on. Yeah. Can you think of any other like interesting magic systems that you've come across in your reading or, or watching of, of things that have really captured your imagination? Oh gosh. I, there's so many. I mean, fantasy is all is filled with so many great magic systems. Um, some of my favorites, I, I have, there's some, some um, from sort of simple to more complicated. Um, there's the Avatar, the last airbender magic system. I just love that system with the, the bending of the elements. And, uh, you know, I think it, it um, it's just so appealing uh, and it's simple, but it can, it leads to some such great like tension and stories and between the different elemental um, focused nations. And so, yeah, that, that one is always, um, uh, I, I love that. I think if I had to live in one magic world, I'd, I'd want to be a, want to be an airbender. airbender. I, know. <laughs> I know. I don't like flying though. 
I've gone back and forth on this. Um, I mean, I like the outfits of the Fire Nation. So <laughs> I feel like maybe I'd want to be a, a firebender. But, you know, I, but I think the water tribes seem like a more peaceful place. So maybe water. I go back and forth. Um, I'm a big fan of, of Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. And one of the things I love about that magic system is sort of the pseudo-scientific nature of it, where they've taken something that is legitimately is a, a thing in our world, alchemy, um, which is sort of was a, a pseudo-science and, and made it into a magic system. Um, and uh, there is a um, fantasy series called The Craft Sequence by Max Gladstone, um, which is, I don't even know how to describe it, but I would, I guess I would call it a, um, a modern capitalist fantasy magic system in which um, the power of gods is subject to um, trade and bonds and contracts and stock markets. And so it's like magical power, but also the characters are kind of like lawyers and accountants in a way. Um, but it's a, it, it's a great magic system. Mm. Like what about the price of magic? So I, I feel like you've added an extra element where you can't use it too much. or If you, you draw on too much power, you, you become sick. Um, like what's the thought behind that? And, and was there any inspiration from, from that side of the story? Well, the um, jade and the way it works in, in many ways is uh, an allegory for things in our world, like uh, money and greed and drugs and thing, things that when in too much excess can corrupt. And so um, what I wanted to do with the, with the jade was have the sort of spectrum of how people, how tolerant people were to it and how um, capable they were of using it. So on one hand, you've got the people who are, who, who have a high jade tolerance um, and you, and then there are the, and who can use it and who are trained to use it. Um, but it couldn't just be that they were naturally born to be able to use it. Even if you have the abilities to use it, you have to train for a long time to be able to um, access those powers. And then there's the people who can't use it at all, and they're stigmatized in society. And then there's those who are so sensitive to it that it has terrible health effects and, uh, and drives them crazy. Um, and so it just felt uh, interesting and believable and natural to me that there would be a variety of reactions to this jade in the world. Um, and, uh, and it also allowed me to kind of play with something that is it's almost taken for granted in fantasy a lot, which is that birthright ability. Certain people have magic and certain people don't. Um, and I wanted to make that more nuanced and complicated mm. where, um, you know, certain people are able to use it, but it's not that simple. You know, there's there's varying levels of it, and then there's training, and there's um, there's modern medicine that intervenes, uh, and so on. Yeah, you mentioned um, you know the birthright element of just you know someone who's born to be able to use magic, and you've evolved that trope or flipped it a little bit. Are there any other tropes in fantasy that you think are moving to become more modern that, um, or or should potentially be? be kind of smashed apart and, and evolved into something different? Mm, I feel like every trope has the potential to be subverted and mm. um, to be examined and to be played with in different ways. Um, there's that birthright trope that I mentioned. I feel like the chosen one trope is one that is incredibly common in fantasy, but is um, often uh, also uh subverted or um, examined or fulfilled in, in different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, but there, and I'm like, I'm trying to think of others off the top of my head. There's so many. Um, the uh, idea of particular um, characteristics with races, 
right? There's sort of traditional fantasy milieu of like elves are a certain, they're elegant and cultured and they are mortal. And then orcs are barbaric and uh, warlike and dwarves are like this and et cetera. And that uh, Star Trek is actually deeply guilty of that as well. Mm. Cleons are a certain way and Vulcans are a certain way. And, um, you know, I, I think that that is, uh, that's something that gets broken down when, uh, with, if you are writing more nuanced fantasy and, and, um, and examining that on a deeper level, um, no group is ever homogenous. So yeah, there's lots of ways in which fantasy get uh, tropes can be, um, can be either updated or subverted or, or, or recreated. Mm. Are there any any writers, any modern fantasy writers out there you've you've seen doing really cool things that you'd love to shout out and and even recommend books and um, and things in this sort of modern fantasy genre that we're talking about um, that that other people might re- be really interested in? I was trying to think of, and I do have I have some suggestions specifically for um, fantasy novels that take place in a more modern era. Um, and that are secondary world, but um, aren't aren't ancient history. Um, and uh, one of them is the craft sequence um, by Max Gladstone that I mentioned. I believe it's, I think it's at six books now, um, and they are all standalone, so you can read them in any order. Because awesome. um, yeah, they are they are each individual stories, and they all interlink in the same world and characters reappear so a secondary character in one story might be the protagonist in another story but um they it's a it's a really innovative series that um i'd like to see get shouted out more uh robert jackson bennett writes um uh the divine cities trilogy and um foundry side and that's another example of um, a more modern fantasy world. Um, and that is, it's a fantastic uh, series as well. Um, uh, Josiah Bancroft's Books of Babel are not, they're not exactly modern, um, but they are definitely um, more modern era than kind of your traditional um, ancient setting. And uh, the last book, Fall of Babel. It starts with Tower of Babel, I believe, and goes to it goes through two others. And the last one, Fall of Babel, comes out either this week or next week. Oh, so wow, that's okay. another complete series. Um, and then finally, um, C.L. Polk, who won the World Fantasy Award recently, um, wrote a trilogy called The Kingston Cycle, which is. Uh, analogous to, I believe, kind of like early 20th century um, and uh, and is also great. So those are some, if you are not, if you want to f- sort of broaden out into, um, into non-traditional fantasy that still takes place in a fantasy world, but is, is more modern in its feel. Mm. You mentioned a few trilogies there. I'd love to to pause just, I guess, to dive. There's a few writers who listen to this podcast, dive into a little bit of the craft side. You've you've just, or I believe you you finished it a while ago, but um, the third book is just about to come out of the Greenbone Saga. Like, what are some of the challenges of writing a trilogy as opposed to a standalone novel, which you've done previously with other work? Yeah, I started with a standalone novel, then I wrote a duology, then I wrote a trilogy. And I'm a little bit concerned about the, <laughs> the trajectory. Yeah. If my next series is Has seven books, books. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm very determined to put a, put the brakes on this particular trend. Uh, but um, writing a trilogy, yeah, there, there are certain challenges that go along with it. Um, because uh, each book has to stand on its own and be a satisfying story. But the entire trilogy as a whole has to have its own narrative arc as well. So you are juggling um, multiple arcs uh, with each book. And um, I was uh, incredibly um, 
anxious about uh, making the second book after I found out that my publisher wanted three books. I was anxious about getting this about the second book because that's often the book that um, people that is all the it's I think it, the second book is the make it or break it book mm. because it's either going to be the sophomore slump soggy middle book or it's going to 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 take off and and kind of um, turn things on their head and elevate the the scope of the series. So um, so that was sort of a stressful book to write. And then the third book um, was just as uh, stressful to write because it was long and complicated and it's, and sticking the landing um, is such an important thing because there's definitely readers who won't read the series until it's complete. Uh, and, uh, and the last thing you want is for people to say, oh, you know, the ending didn't live up. So uh, so writing a, a trilogy, I, one, one thing that I kept in mind the entire time was um, that I needed to remember what the book was not, because it's very easy when you're writing big, fat fantasy books to get enamored with the subplots and the growing cast of characters and the scope of the world and go off in different directions. Um, and I could have ended up with... Um, an entire cast of characters over in uh, in Espenia and started writing a spinoff there. And so it could have, it's, and I'm certainly would not have been the first author to fall victim to scope creep. Mm. But what I did was um, I kept focused on the vision of what the story was as a whole, which is um, this family saga. And so I was pretty disciplined about making sure that even in a third book that spans 20 years, um, every scene still has to come back to what that primary storyline is. And, um, and if it didn't, then, it, then it wasn't, wasn't crucial to the story. Mm. Uh, so that's how I managed to wrangle it into the, into the shape that it was. They're, they're, they're big books. And sometimes they uh, were just, it, it was just like working with a, Jenga tower, where if you move one piece, the entire thing <laughs> is at risk of falling apart or trying to solve a multi-size, like a Rubik's cube with, um, uh, uh, that is just constantly at, at, uh, uh, feels like you can't hold all the information in your head, but somehow in the end, magically it, it all comes together. It all happens. Did you have like signpost chapters or parts that you were kind of like, okay, I've got to get there and I've got to get here. And then this is the ending. Like, how did you, did you have stuff written down? Was it all in your head? Like, how did you think about kind of navigating through that? It really was a, um, the ele- eat the elephant one bite at a time approach. Um, the third book was uh, daunting to think about. And so the way I approached it was I um, thought of it almost as seasons of a TV show. I knew that third book would cover a whole bunch of time. And um, I already had a structure in place um, based on like these interludes that would break up the books of the first, of Jade City and Jade War. So I used those interludes as, um, as guideposts for myself and made each section of the book almost like a season of a television show. So I could think of each section um, of which were separated by, by some time jumps as having their own mini narrative arc and climax, which would then build up to the, to the overall one. But it just, I just had to break it into pieces into smaller Mm. and smaller pieces. You mentioned seasons of a television show. Um, the Greenbone Saga has been picked up as a as a TV show. Congratulations! Um, Thank you. Like, what what has that process been like? And like, how hands on, hands off is it? Um, like, ha- just tell me a little bit about that experience. Uh, it has been um, interesting, and it has been uh, slow. <laughs> Hollywood is, <laughs> is publishing is slow. And Hollywood is, is even more so. Uh, there are a lot of hoops to jump through, a lot of executives to get on board. There's a lot of, of input from different people. Um, and so I am, I'm not writing this show, 
but I am consulting on it. So I do see the scripts and I sit in on, on some of the calls. Um, so uh, I can I can say it's moving forward and uh, I've seen the pilot script um, and there's the other script, the second episode script that's in development. So fingers crossed. It, it is as, as a author, it is um, it's, it, it's fascinating and gratifying, but, and also you have to emotionally distance yourself somewhat mm. because it's no longer your baby. Um, it is also other people's baby. And so you, you know, going in that it's not going to come out exactly the way that it came out in your mind. Um, and it's not going to follow your book exactly. So uh, you have to re-envision it as, as uh, you know, something else. Mm. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting because even when, when you, when you release a book, you've got, you've got in your head what you meant to say, but then have you found readers take things differently sometimes and, and have their own perspective um, and thoughts on things? Yeah, definitely. It's fascinating to see. Uh, it's also a part of the magic, I think. Mm. For example, um, I have readers who have very different opinions on the characters. I have a cast of characters um, who are the members of, of the Call family and um, each of them has their fans. And so they're readers who, who think, who feel very differently about different characters in the book. Uh, and that to me is a compliment because it means that those people feel real because nobody in the real world agrees on anyone, can't agree on anything. And so and when I see readers disagreeing about characters in my book, um, that is actually a sign that those characters were uh, were written in a way that makes them feel like real human beings. Yeah, I mean, I think that's wonderful. Even like, you know, The Vampire Diaries has the team, Damon, Team Stefan debate. I mean, I can see for sure Team Hilo and Shay and, um, you know, those kind of wars breaking out and who's who's their favourite and who's a good person and who's not a good person because right. your characters are quite, I don't know if morally ambiguous is the right word, but just real people. Um, do you think, maybe, maybe, I'm just thinking aloud, maybe that is a bit more of a um, a trait of modern fantasy as well with more complex characters. Um, like how do you think about researching characters and making them real and giving them backstory and making them come to life off a page? I think about it in a few ways. Um, one is that uh, you get to know your characters by writing them. So when I start off writing the book, I have a sense of who these characters are and where they fit into the narrative and what their role is um, and what their backstory is. But what, I, what happens is in the process of writing, I learn more about them. So by the time the first draft is done, I go back and I start revising and that's where I see like, oh, that's not how that character would say that. Mm. And now you can, I can start to hear that character's voice in my head and, and the dialogue um, starts falling into place because I know how that character would say something. I know how that character would enter a room, how they would respond in, in certain situations. So um, with the Greenbone Saga characters, I've now spent so long with these characters <laughs> that I really do feel like I know them incredibly well just from spending time with them it's it really is almost like just getting to know a real person the more time you spend with your characters the the more gets revealed to you um, the other thing that I keep in mind is that character development is never linear and it's not like sometimes you read stories where a character has a flaw they learn their lesson and they're a changed person huzzah but like People don't, it's not really what happens. We make People the same don't. mistakes. Yeah, exactly. We just make, we, we're, we're slow to change. Um, we do change, um, but we also don't change. Mm. So, uh, you know, Edison in has, as they, as they mature, as they age, as they gain life experience, they evolve. But there's also a 
core of them that remains unchanging. And so I try to reflect that where um, character development is not a straight line. People go through their ups and downs and they backslide and they, um, they, you know, go sideways sometimes and they, but they, they do, do try their best and sometimes they make progress. And, but even, even when they do change, they're still kind of fundamentally themselves on some level. So I just try to make that feel um, true. So, you know, even by the end of Jade Legacy, you'll have seen characters like Hilo and Shay for 30 years and they're still them. Mm. They've just gained all this life experience and, and they've changed and they've grown. And, um, and so hopefully you, that whole progression feels natural. And then the final advantage that I have is that I'm writing a saga with multiple points of view. And so every character is viewed by the other characters. So I, I can show you how a character like Shay sees herself, but then I can show you how Lon sees her and how Hilo sees her and how Anden sees her. So it's, it's like that... Um, it's like if you see an image from one perspective, it's two-dimensional. But if mm. you're rendering a 3D model, you're taking snapshots from all different angles, and that's what makes it become a three-dimensional object. And the same thing goes for people, because we are not ever the same to different people in our lives. We, we present ourselves differently depending on whether we're talking to a coworker or a friend or a parent. or And so... Um, all the different relationships between the characters is is what makes those people feel real. Mm. What what about names? I think like one of the best character names is minor character, but Wound Puppy Doomwa. I'm like, it's just rolls off your tongue so well. Like, how do you think of think up names? Like, what's the process there? It's just it really is just me with a notebook and a pen playing with words. It that's really what it comes down. There's a logic to it. So, um, so I had to have a naming convention for, for, for the Kekanese people. And I, uh, I established that so that there's certain cultural cues so that their family name is first. Um, and they, it's usually a, a, sh- a relatively short family name, but then they have this multisyllabic given name, which gets casually shortened down um, when they're with friends and family. So there is a um, certain naming logic that I have in place. And then I just um, try to make the names distinct so that um, when a character comes onto the page, you don't have to think too hard about Mm. who that character is because the names aren't too overlapping or too similar or too difficult to remember. Um, But yeah, otherwise it's, it's just me trying to come up with names that sound good. Yeah, well, yeah, Wound Puppy Doomwa definitely sounds good. I love saying it. It's so good. Um, I love his name too. <laughs> and so um, the final book is out uh, November 30. Is that globally? It is out November 30th in the US and December 2nd uh, in the UK and oh, and Australia, I believe. Cool. So anyone who wants to, I guess, stay in touch or engage with you, or what's what's the best place to find you online? I know previously it's been Twitter, which is how I initially found you, but I saw maybe online, maybe it's going to shift somewhere else or um, things are going to change. So what's the best place for people to engage with you and, and find out what you're doing and what's next? Yeah, well, my website is fondly.com. Um, I also have a Patreon uh, for anyone who wants extra short stories and Q and a, um, for me, um, I am going, I am trying to spend less time on social media, but you can still find me there. Um, Twitter at Fonda J Lee and on Instagram at Fonda Lee. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much Fonda for your time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck with, with the rest of the book launch and, um, going through that me, you and, um, anyone who's listening, it's such an amazing series. So check out the green bone saga hi tim here thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode you might also enjoy the interview i did with sabah tahir on ya fantasy one with andy weir on sci-fi or a breakdown of action adventure with matthew riley for those episodes and more there's a full listing at timhawken.com forward slash genre wars 
please remember to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps spread the word. Thanks again and happy reading. Need some comfort